0: listening to Demise, a podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I supposedly discuss writing. Specifically today, Katherine Harrison's writing as we get into The Kiss. And oh my God, I don't want to do this episode. However, for the sake of my own deconstruction and understanding of the novel. We're going to get into it today and only for one episode. So if I don't get to everything, that's just going to be so sorry boo hoo, catch you next time. But this is not a book that I enjoy. But as you may be aware if you're following along with the podcast, I'm doing a series on text that I'm covering in my oral exam. And I am not going to delay much further. However, I will tell you if this is your first episode of the podcast, I don't don't recommend this being your first episode of the podcast. Also, this is not an audiobook podcast. I'm not going to detail every little last thing in the novel. What I do with this podcast is I read text, I analyze it, I discuss it, I relate to it, etc., now before I get into the text, I'm going to do my usual plug in. If you would like to support the podcast, I don't do advertisements. I stopped listening to The Pajama Pants, The Pajama Pants, The Pajama Pants podcast because of all their fucking ads. As much as I enjoyed that podcast, I I couldn't take it anymore. One of the reasons why I was disappointed Well, I won't say disappointed. One of the things I didn't like about the Sopranos podcast was the ads. They were long. They would come up at random intervals. It was annoying, and it sucked. So I don't want to have that kind of podcast. So if you'd like to support the podcast, I suggest you go buy my books or listen to my music. So you can buy my books on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. And I have books for any occasion. I have poetry, I have novels, I have short stories. I have a, a whole coach array of different selections for you, and some of them are 99 cents on Kindle. So it's not that difficult to support the podcast. Also, tell your friends about it, for God's sake. Tell your friends about my books if you enjoy them. Don't just keep them to yourself. That's rude and irresponsible. You have to help support artists, right? Anyway, if you'd like to listen to some music for free, you can find my music everywhere where you stream music. Just search for Lurking Vowel. I have ambient, I have jazz, I have some vocal, white boy acoustic crap, I have a little bit of everything. I hate it when people say they listen to a little bit of everything. But anyway, well, let's just get into this novel. Uh, to preface before I start reading, uh, this novel is a letdown. So if you're not familiar with Katherine Harrison's The Kiss, it is presented as a memoir. Now, we just covered Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir, so we know that memory is not necessarily... Um, always right i could not find the other word because my mind blanked and it doesn't really matter you don't give a shit but it's not reliable that's what i is what i want to say and the way her memories get mixed up in this memoir it's very frustrating the way she structures this now i'll say this about Catherine harrison her writing's not bad Much like Never Let Me Go, that is where the buck stops for me. Because every other thing about this, I keep wanting to call it a novel, this memoir, it's incredibly frustrating. We came here to read about you and your dad have sex, and no other fucking reason, okay? We don't care about your mom, we don't care about your grandmother or your grandfather, we don't care about any of that. We want to know you having sex with your father and the psychological effects of that and it takes about halfway through the goddamn book for that to happen and it's so unsatisfying i'm not asking for porn i'm not asking for something to be titillating or erotic but the way she formats and structures this is so obnoxious And you think that the way she starts the first page, that it's going to get right into it. No, she's got to tell you about her fucking childhood. Which I understand to a degree, because, yeah, you had an absent father, and that's one of the reasons why you ended up having an affair with him. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, I don't think this affair was 100% consensual, and he outright rapes her in this novel, this memoir, a few times. So... I firmly believe that she was coerced into this, and being that she was so young when it happened, and I don't care what anyone says, if you're, the age is 18 to 22, you're a fucking dumbass, okay? Now, you might be bright in other ways, but when it comes to emotion, you're a dumbass. The brain is not fully formed for most people until you're 25, beyond the scope of consent, And this memoir. I'm going to emphasize memoir throughout this, so I don't call it a novel. Yesterday, I was curious. Because, as a man, I have questions for myself. And a lot of men are afraid to talk about this kind of stuff. Because, while some men feel pride in their sexual attraction to women, other men are a bit more conservative or reserved about it. So... I have this sort of internal rule for myself. Now, I'm a married man. At no point in my life do I plan on having sex with anyone but my wife for the rest of my life. So, this rule is generally arbitrary. But, I say, you know, if I were single and I were out there, I would never want to engage in any form of a relationship with someone who is um, about seven years my junior or younger. So basically anyone born after 1998. (laughs) The reason being is that there's uh, an emotional gap in terms of maturity and wisdom. So I'm not going to judge other men, well I will, but I'm not going to condemn other men externally for you know pursuing younger women if they're legal you know in reality you're not hurting society now others may argue against that I'm just one guy I don't want to hear it okay but I personally wouldn't really be into someone who was old enough well actually young enough for me have to have been old enough to to hold them and stand up on my two feet and remember it when I was a kid. So, I reckon that age is about seven years old. Now, you can argue, well, you could, don't argue with me. I'm just saying seven is the limitation. So, I read a Quora post, and the reason why... Well, I'll just tell you about the core post, and then I'll get into the reason why I was interested. There was a core post about, uh, basically, uh, is it morally wrong for a man who's 40 or older to date a woman who is 18 through the age of 20? And everyone who answered was basically, you can kind of guess what they said. None of them were in favor of it, and none of them were men. So I I see people who are of that age now who are 18 to 20 or even 22, and most of them look like kids to me. I'm 30 now, so I'm at a point where most of the the models and uh, newer actresses and people who are foisted upon us in popular culture, you know, they're kids, essentially. And a lot of people who are in their their early years of adulthood don't like being called kids, and I'm not trying to insult you. But for the purposes of attraction, you're a fucking kid to me, and I don't want anything to do with you in that regard. So, and also, gentlemen... Don't tell women, uh, or I guess this could apply to, to women too, although I don't hear about it that often, um, don't tell women that they're mature for their age. That's weird. And just because someone seems bright or even mature for their age doesn't mean that they're actually bright or mature for their age. There are layers to people and we all wear a mask and I've known people who were younger who seemed very intelligent and articulate because they spoke well but you peeled that onion a little bit and you saw that they were a child essentially. So even this affair in this novel if you want to call it an affair between uh, an older man and a younger man a younger man a younger woman is kind of gross. I mean, he's in his... I think she says he's in his early 50s. I, I, I'm not going to look through the novel and find out, and I'm certainly not going to Google it. But the reason why is because... Uh, the reason why I was interested in that Quora post is because I was wondering about the moral uh, sensibility of finding someone younger than you to that, that degree attractive. And I, I look at it the way that I've, I've, I've talked about before, and I've discussed it with um, friends, that you can find a painting attractive, you can find a sculpture attractive. That doesn't mean that you're going to have sex with the painting or the sculpture, just like you can find a puppy cute, you can find a baby cute, and you don't you don't cross that boundary and you don't have a desire to most of the time but you can admire something for its beauty i can as a supposedly heterosexual man admire another man for his beauty and there's nothing wrong with that so yes if you think that someone younger than you is attractive you can don't be creepy about it for god's sake but there's nothing wrong with saying, yes, that person is attractive. Because as I've talked about before, when I started grad school and I, I was on campus for the first time in a long time with other students, I was like, God damn, all these, these. I was, both the, the boys and the girls, The you know, they were about 19 on average. I was like, I was an idiot in undergrad because... Everyone is, is essentially attractive here. Why didn't I get out more? So, I also felt really old when I was around those those people. And it was just in passing. But, and then now, <laughs> this past semester, I was in classes. Because uh, we were doing doing in-person classes again. I was in classes with younger students who were just starting out in the grad program, and all of the older students were fucking gone for some reason. I I found myself kind of out of my depth a little bit. Um, there's just a real separation there, and I couldn't imagine trying to be in a relationship with someone of that generation. So there's that too. I don't know if I come off as rational here, Or maybe I come off as a crazy person, but I just, I don't see it. I don't see why, I understand why a younger person would be into an older person, definitely, because I'm into older women. But realistically, most older women would want nothing to do with me, no matter what age I am, really. I mean, maybe when I'm in my 40s, if I were single, I could date a woman in her 50s. But beyond that, I don't know. I've gotten way off track, and I I said I would start talking about this book, and I am talking about this book. We're talking about the ethics of the situation, and we're building up to it, because it's more than just an older man with a younger woman. This is a father and child. Now, granted, they were separated, But there's an ethical thing here. Yes, it's illegal. Incest is illegal. Now, whether or not you think it should be illegal, that's a whole different ballgame. But there's a, um, a moral thing going on here. You can say whatever happens between two consenting adults. Now, that's where I call everything into question. Because I don't believe that this woman was consenting with 2020 um, vision, if you will. I don't think that all of her mental facilities were there when she was engaging in this activity with her father, no matter what it was. And the fact that she wanted to call it off, and then he kept going, and then he eventually was like, okay... If you don't want to do this anymore, we won't. After it was too late, mind you. I, I It's just a disgusting thing, really. And the fact that uh, people came after her for it, I don't agree with. I don't think that she's to blame for anything other than writing a shitty book. I just want to watch Boogie Nights in the Living Room. I don't want to read this book. I watched licorice pizza in the theater last weekend, and that was a 10 out of 10. I probably talked about it last episode, but here we go. I'm done delaying. We meet at airports. We meet in cities where we've never been before. We meet where no one will recognize us. One of us flies, the other brings a car, and in it we set out for some destination. Increasingly, the places we go are unreal places. The petrified forest, Monument Valley, the Grand Canyon... Places as stark and beautiful and deadly as those revealed in satellite photographs of distant planets. Airless, burning, and human. Against such backdrops, my father takes my face in his hands. He tips it up and kisses my closed eyes, my throat. I feel his fingers in the hair at the nape of my neck. I feel his hot breath on my eyelids. We quarrel sometimes, and sometimes we weep. The road always stretches endlessly ahead and behind us so that we are out of time as well about a place. We go to Muir Woods in Northern California, so shrouded in blue fog that the road is lost. We drive down the Natchez Trace into deep green Mississippi summer. The trees bear blossoms as big as my head. Their ivory petals drift to the ground and cover our tracks, separated from family and from the flow of time, my work and from school. Standing against a sheer face of red rock, one thousand feet high, kneeling in a cave dwelling two thousand years old. Watching as a million bats stream from the mouth of Carlsbad caverns into the purple dusk, these nowhere's and no times are the only home we have i want to go over this structurally we meet at airports we meet in cities where we've never been before we meet where no one will recognize us this is not something that i would do as a writer this wee 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 business i i get that it's a stylistic choice Uh, However, I think that it's a poor stylistic choice. Just as her emphasis on the word places. Increasingly, the places we go are unreal places. Places as stark and beautiful and deadly as those revealed in satellite photographs of distant planets. Airless, burning, and human. Airless, burning, and human. That's not a sentence. Again... I have written things that are not sentences. We as writers have the freedom to do what the hell we want to. And it's up to the readers to decipher whether or not they accept it. And I find that while she's trying to make a statement, and she's trying to titillate the audience enough to read, because as my auto-bio professor says... When you write something, you want to invite your audience in. You want to comfort them. It's like you're welcoming guests into your home. Offer them tea. But beyond that, I don't think that this is a proper introduction. I think that the following chapter would have been better. If you want to call it a chapter. They're not really separated by chapters. My mother's parents raise me. I live in their house until I'm 17. In it, my father's name is never spoken. His existence is not acknowledged. Where's your dad? Other children ask. I don't know, I answer. Why, they ask, but I don't know what to say to that either. He and my mother divorce when I'm six months old. I stay with her and her parents. He leaves. My father is an absence. A hole like one of those my grandmother cuts out of family photographs. My mother would cut pictures in half and throw out the other half. Rather than discard the entire picture of an event that includes someone she dislikes, she snips the offender out with untidy haste using her manicure scissors. I don't think that anything that happens up until about page 49 is anything of interest to us, so I'm skipping ahead. And that is a major critique for this author because this is about a 200-page memoir and she cannot retain my attention through, let's say, 150 pages. (laughs) At 12.45, I knock on the bedroom door. She's out of the bath. She's set her hair, but she has not put on her makeup. She's not wearing anything but a bra and a slip. Discarded blouses and skirts and trousers cover every surface of her usually immaculate bedroom. Shoes tumble from the closet as if arrested in the attempt to escape. I sit in the rocker and watch her. That looks nice, I encourage, with each change of clothes. But she looks in the mirror and tears whatever it is off. Please, I say. It's 1. And then, after a few more outfits, it's 1.15. You go, she says. I can't. I'm not ready. She sits on the bed, still undressed. She puts her face in her hands. Alone, I say. I can't. You'll have to, or you'll be late. Just put something on, I beg. Please, I'll drive and you can do your makeup in the car. No. You go. At 1.30 I leave, transfixed with dread. Whether of the solitary meeting or of being late, I can't say. I speed on the highway, flooded with adrenaline, nervous enough that my back aches a cold clench. I park the car and run all the way from the lot and through the terminal to the gate. I arrive breathing hard, a man wearing a tan suit, not a brown one, straightened slowly from the drinking fountain. And turns to look at me. We recognize one another immediately. We've exchanged recent photographs, but it's more than that. We look like each other. Doesn't that make this a little bit more gross? As my father walks toward me, he wipes his wet mouth with the hand of his, with the back of his free hand. For God's sakes. The other carries a heavy-looking black case, his camera. He explains. You're late, he says, even though the plane was delayed. It's been on the ground for some minutes. I know, I say I'm sorry, the traffic. I lied to protect my mother, so naked in her bra and curlers. I could give her away, let him know how much this visit means to her, enough to warrant a frenzied morning before the mirror, but I don't. I protect her, as I've learned to do from her own example. By the way, spoiler alert, the dad and mom get it on. In the terminal, my father leads me out of the flow of the passengers and the friends and family who have come to meet them. He finds an empty spot by one of the big plate glass windows that look out onto the airfield. Airfield! Zah! Don't move, he says. Just let me look at you. My father looks at me. Then, as no one has ever looked at me before, his hot eyes consume me. Eyes that I will discover always just this bloodshot. I almost feel their touch. He takes my hands, one in each of his, and turns them over, stares at my palms. He does not actually kiss them, but his look is one that ravishes. Oh, he says, turn around. I feel his gaze as it moves over my neck, my back, and down to my feet. God! he says when I face him again. Oh, God! His eyes, now fixed on mine, are bright with tears. Your hair, he says. It's longer than I imagined. Than I could've. It was behind your shoulders in the picture you sent. I nod. I don't speak. His eyes rob me of words. They seem to draw the air from my mouth so that I can barely breathe. The girl my father sees has blonde hair that falls past her waist, past her hips. It falls to the point at which her fingertips would brush her thighs if her arms were not crossed before her chest. I'm no longer very thin. Away at school I learned to eat, but as if embarrassed to be caught with a body, I hide whatever I can of it. We walked to the baggage claim in silence and wait where the metal plates of the luggage conveyor slide one under the other as the stream of suitcases turns the corner. My father picks up his bag and we walk, still without talking out of the terminal. Once outside he takes one of my hands in his, I feel his fingers tremble. Do you mind, he says. Could I? I don't take my hand away. It isn't brown, I say of his suit, as we get into the car. Yes, it is. Isn't it more of a tan or a khaki? It's brown. Throughout this book, these two have the dumbest fucking arguments. And they could argue over the fact that they're fucking one another, but I think that they're filtering their frustration through these dumb, bickering arguments, as many of us do. I'm picking these specific parts for the sake of discussion and analysis, not because I'm perverted. So we're going to push forward to, to page 66. In the terminal, he puts down the camera case to embrace me with both arms. I love you, he says. God, I love you. I lost you, but now I have you back, and I'll never let you go again. He says the words, and he holds me tightly, so tightly how solid he is, how real, father, my father, the word made flesh. That's an interesting sentence, the word made flesh. I mean, I guess in one sense, she's lived without her father, and now she has a person to put to that word that's been lingering throughout her whole existence, but... um, The word made flesh almost seems biblical to me. You don't know how I suffered when they sent me away, he says. You can't imagine the pain of losing you. He takes my face in his hands and kisses my forehead, my eyes. How can a daughter of mine be this beautiful? When I look at you, I wonder if I too must not be handsome. My father knows he's a good-looking man. He's overweight and I have to stretch my arms around him, but his features... A strong jaw, high cheekbones, and long nose are good enough to excuse the excess. Um, I I have to address this because um, this was written in the 90s, so beauty standards were a little bit different. But um, it, it doesn't matter how big or small you are. An attractive person is an attractive person. And in In my opinion, and I don't often say my opinion in that sense that I have to tell you that I'm expressing my opinion, but I am telling you now that this is just my opinion. Um, People who are unattractive are unattractive at any weight. So if you're overweight and you're unattractive, you might become more attractive in the sense of society's beauty standards when you lose weight. But you don't magically become beautiful. I've noticed that uh, a lot of women on TikTok and the internet in general, and men as well. But I'm I'm more uh, in tune with what the women are doing. Obviously, they post their before and after pictures, and many times I kind of prefer the before because I like women would you know, who were thicker. So, they don't become more attractive because they lost the weight, though. So, this whole note of uh, saying that she that he's overweight and she has to stretch her arms around him, this, this girl has sex with this man, okay? And there was some attraction there, obviously, consensual or not. So, I don't don't quite comprehend, I know why she does it, but at the same time, why do we need to know that this man is good looking, but he's overweight? And by what standards is he overweight? Is he just over the FDA's recommended, is it the FDA? I don't think it's the FDA. I sound like a dumbass, but... You know what I'm talking about, you son of a bitch. I'm 5'8. The recommended weight for me is 160 or less. So when I was 160, and yes, I'm getting into this. Hold your horses. It's my podcast. At 160, I was very skinny. And I mean, I I, I went up to 203 pounds and then I lost over 40 pounds to get to that weight. I have been 125 pounds before gaining that weight and uh, people were worried about me. (laughs) I mean, I was a kid, but having gained that amount of weight, did not make me more or less attractive and getting down to 160 which is the recommended weight for someone my my height i you know my wife said she prefers me with some some weight on me compared to then, because back then i was um i was when i was naked there wasn't much to me i'll put it that way so you know, I'm not night and day different now. Just like, I'm going to go ahead and get into this because it bothers me. I went up to uh, 213 pounds. So in 2019, I decided to lose some weight and I lost about 20 pounds. So I posted a before and after photo on Twitter back then. And this, one of the, this, fucker said, yeah, I can't tell the difference. You know, if you if you don't tell the difference between someone who's lost 20 pounds, maybe don't tell them that. Maybe keep your fucking mouth shut, you dumbass. And I can tell the difference. I'm the one who's got the weight on him. Obviously, this whole weight scenario has triggered me in some way, but this is this gentleman was a real asshole. And what's funny to me is that I muted him and I told him several times, I've muted you because I just didn't give a shit whether or not he blocked me or not. Because he thought that he could be chummy with me and make degrading jokes at my expense. So, uh, He would say, yeah, I'm just joking. People, just because you're joking doesn't make it right. And I could say his fucking name on here. But, you know, he's not really hurting other people. He's got a wife and kids. He followed me on Instagram. And what's funny is that when he eventually unfollowed me on Twitter, he didn't unfollow me on Instagram. So I had to block him on Instagram. And then, of course, I blocked him on Twitter. And of course, someone shows me that he subtweeted me afterwards and a, 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 he called me egotistical because I blocked him after he unfollowed me. Huh? Yeah, fuck that guy. He's one of those guys in the hashtag writing community that keeps trying to come off as a big deal. He even had a verified account, he had a white check mark. That just means that they verified your identity. That doesn't mean that you're an important person. And his writing that he had published was not fiction, by the way. He was working on fiction, and it was shitty. Fuck him. Fuck his life. I, I'm done talking about him, but... Yeah. You just heard me go on a rant in the middle of this goddamn podcast. All because Catherine Harrison wants to fat shame her disgusting-ass dad. Okay. My father pushes his tongue deep into my mouth, wet, insistent, exploring, then withdrawn. He picks up his camera case, and smilingly, brightly, he joins the end of the line of passengers disappearing into the airplane. How long do I stand there, my mouth, my hand to my mouth, people washing around me? The plane has taxied away from the gate before I move. That's a long time. Through the terminal's thick wall of glass, I watch it take off, the thrust that lifts its heavy, shining belly into the clouds. I'm frightened by the kiss. I know it's wrong, and its wrongness is what lets me know, too, that it is a secret. She proceeds to have a mental breakdown as a result of this kiss. That is another reason why I say that this relationship is not entirely consensual. Okay, so she is finishing up her degree. She drops out. of She doesn't drop out. She says she stops out of school where she takes a year off. She goes and she uses her refund from school to rent a basement apartment. And her and her father commence an affair. But the first actual sexual encounter takes place, at least from what I've read, at his mother's house. Okay? He does this for a specific reason. And Catherine Harrison says... It's to take power away from his mother symbolically or something. I'll read the the damn page, believe me you. But I don't agree with that. This man takes his daughter to meet his parents. His parents are divorced. Now, during this interaction where she goes from the mother's house to the father's house. The grandfather makes a pass at her. He grabs her leg and says, ooh, if I was younger, just you watch out. So she cracks a joke with her father that, oh, it must run in the family. He doesn't find that very funny. However, Catherine Harrison goes into detail about how the they have these conversations about the nature of their relationship. And he says that God gave you to me. So he's supposedly a minister or a pastor, and he knows that incest is wrong on a biblical level, even though it's in the Bible. But beyond that, He's rationalizing it to her, but he's also rationalizing it to himself. And that's something that I don't think Catherine Harrison, at least her character in this memoir, realizes. He is building up to this moment. Despite the fact that he gave her the kiss and that they are obviously hot to trot for one another, he has not, he spends a long time building up to it. Um, And that is a, a sign of a predator, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't know. There are stories of this director who molested children. And it's not the director of Powder and Jeepers Creepers. This is another pervert. And he would have boys stay over at his house, but he would not have sex with them. No. He built up to it through them, in a sense. So the story that I heard, or I read from one of the the boys that stayed at his house, was he would offer for them to sleep in his bed, and he would sleep on the floor. And if they would sleep on the floor he would watch them sleep from up on his bed. And they would just have these silent moments between one another where they were both fully conscious. But since it's dark and late at night, you know, there's some... There's a weird frequency between people. So, the boys didn't say, hey, what are you doing? They just kind of laid there. And he just watched them. And there was... A time where he actually got down on the floor with one of them, but he didn't do anything. Okay? He was building up to it. Even if it was, was just with, even if it was with different boys, he had to build up the courage to go through with it. So you know that he knows it's wrong. and he's just kind of looking for the right victim. And that's kind of what he's doing, the father's doing, with Katherine Harrison's character. I'm going to refer to her as a character because it is a book. Um, He's he's testing the waters a bit. You know, one of my professors is a minister. And he was talking about um, fidelity and men and women interacting in that way. And he said women should be, now he's a very conservative man, not politically, but he is a a minister for a reason. He says that, and this is his opinion, not mine, I'm stipulating that, but he said that women should be more guarded and they should not be so, um, they should treat themselves as their own property essentially. So he said, if a man touches you for any reason, doesn't matter if he just puts a hand on your shoulder, you pull away and you give him the stink eye, or you tell him that you're not comfortable with that and you do it firmly. Or you say, get your hands off of me. Keep your hands to yourself. And he said that a lot of times men will test the waters, even in places like church, where they'll sit next to you They might get a little closer, and they'll let their knee touch your knee. Now, being a guy who does not like touching people, and does not like being touched, I even find it awkward touching my wife at times. The whole notion of men flirting with women by touching their knees together is relatively new to me. I don't do it, for one thing. But also, the idea that it would be any way erotic is interesting but apparently there are men who do test the waters physically with women by just touching their knees to the woman's knees and he said if a man does that to you move over so it's funny that as a man he essentially told women not only to be more protective of themselves but to be leery of all man he even said himself he said if i ever touch you even if it's just your shoulder you need to to pull away and he's not a man who likes to be touched either by the way i i just i don't like it i don't like making contact i don't like the idea of someone's skin touching mine and the thought of their skin cells Getting on me and all that shit. No thank you. By the way, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Michael Jackson. Um, Not that he is someone who committed incest. But in the regards of the, the building up to something. If you watch that documentary, which I didn't like and I couldn't finish. Especially when it got to the part where it actually described what Michael Jackson supposedly, allegedly... Asked these boys to do. He started out by being much like another boy. He became friends with their parents. He would sleep over. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, nowadays, uh, I guarantee, goddamn to you, that wouldn't happen. And despite the fact that I was very offended with when my, my mother-in-law said something to my twelve-year-old niece, she told my niece to not wear cut-off shorts around men in public, and she also said around me, as if I would not be able to control some desire I had after seeing legs. Jesus fucking Christ. I was very insulted. But... People are on guard for things like that. And in a sense, you can't really trust anyone. So I also understand, even though it hurt. Because despite the fact that my mother-in-law adores me, she's also aware that most instances of rape and sexual assault happen with someone that you know very well. And you could know them for years before it happens. And it's a sad reality. You have to be protective, even around people that you trust, in a sense. <sighs> yes, I was not happy when... And my my wife was also taken aback by that. Because we overheard it on the phone. She didn't say it when I was in the room. She said it over the phone. Uh, my niece had her own speakerphone. And my wife was like, yeah, I'm going to ask her about that. But... I talked to her about it because it happened a while ago and it bothers me even now. So, as a man, <laughs> I have to be wary of things like that still. You know, when I'm out in public, despite the fact that I think that like a baby's cute, I don't want to just stare at a baby for a really long time because that parent might think that I'm a creep. That is the sad reality of the times that we live in. And maybe I just look like a creep. I don't know. After dessert, we sit stiffly in the living room. All of us in separate chairs. The couch left empty. This is a very nasty, creepy, disgusting episode of the podcast. And if you've turned it off by now, I don't blame you. I don't want to even listen to myself. We watch a crime drama on television and then go to bed. The wind moans and whistles around the corners of the house. It makes a wild... Keening sound. Why are you fucking telling us this? This is a memoir. And when my father comes quietly through the guest room's door, he finds me still awake. He pulls back the covers and I move over, expecting that he will lie down beside me, hold me, an apology for the words of his stepfather I know he dislikes. Imagine his shame. I feel sorry for him, but my father doesn't lie down. And this is, okay, trigger warning for everyone out there. Just, uh uh-uh. I'm not going to put a trigger warning on this episode because you should know this book and the context that I've given you. I might put a trigger warning in the description. I don't know. I'm not going to put it in the title. But I expect that if you've listened to this episode even the first few seconds, unless you're completely ignorant of what this book is about just come on okay don't listen to this if you have an issue with it because it's triggering to me too and I'm the one who has to read the goddamn thing it was assigned to me in class I'll have you fucking know that in that same class there was one book that I refused to read so I just sat quietly in class that day and I think it was the, the Missoula book. I spent money on that book. And I read the first like 15 pages and I put it down. I don't care to read about rape. I really do not. It disgusts me. It triggers me. I don't want to... to uh-uh, mm-mm, mm-mm, I don't want it. So this is challenging for me too. This is your final warning. Instead... He lifts the hem of my nightgown. He doesn't speak, and neither do I. Nor do I make any attempt to stay his hands. Beneath the nightgown I am wearing no underpants. And he opens my legs and puts his tongue between them. Okay. A few things that we need to note. Now, a lot of people may argue that because she knew where this relationship was going and she knew that her father might come to her bedroom, that she wore a nightgown without her underwear, sensing something would happen. Um, your If that is your interpretation... That is your right to that. I would not encourage you to express that opinion out in in public, but everyone has a right to any opinion they want, even if it's terrible. However, um, the language that she uses here, even just calling her underpants, she doesn't say panties or underwear. She says underpants. Um... He opens my legs and puts his tongue between them. Okay. Where? We all know where, but she doesn't specify. Now, let's get a little deeper into this. His mother's house, his mother's house, I think the word's over and over. Aware that such a setting for this advance cannot be insignificant, but not understanding its meaning... Why, what, what he does feels neither good nor bad. It affects so complete a separation between mind and body that I don't know what I feel. Across this divide, deep and unbridgeable, my body responds independently from my mind. My heart, somewhere between them, quickens. Okay. So, she does orgasm during this experience. Does that mean it was consensual? No. I was in a William Blake course, and my friend Chris was also in this course, and this is a fact that I guess I needed to know, but I really didn't want to know. Okay, so, it is possible for women, while they're being raped, to have an orgasm. That does not change the nature of the rape, it doesn't mean that she consented to it, it doesn't mean that she enjoyed it. Orgasm is a natural bodily response. You could do it in your sleep. So, um, I didn't really want... I, I, when I first heard her say that out in, out loud in class, I, in what context, I don't remember. Because it was a William Blake course, for God's sakes. But, uh, I, I don't want to think about it. But, yes, Um, if you have ever uh, seen When Porn Ends, the documentary about porn stars who've retired or retired and had to go back because they couldn't support themselves financially after leaving porn, one of the porn actresses says that despite the fact that men would tell her, ooh, I knew you were never faking it, She said that she never actually enjoyed any of the sex that she had on film and that the experience was akin to the sensation of putting a finger up your nose. Okay, sex is mental. So if you're not into it, even if you're aroused physically, that does not mean that you're going to have a good time. That is why uh, the whole argument about the uh, men being unable to be raped by women. That is invalid. Okay. And there was a very bad episode of, I think it was Law and Order, of a woman who was drugging men and then getting them aroused, not by touching their penises, but by shocking their penises, which I don't know that that's uh, scientifically accurate. Uh, but, I... Uh, the the uh, the whole idea of it is disgusting. Beyond that, but I do know men who have been raped by women. Uh, um, in fact, I'll tell you a story about it, and I'll be brief. But we're in this discussion, so we're going to be in it. Uh, he, as a local musician, he was playing a small bar. This woman, who he said was a 10 out of 10, approached him. She apparently had a lot of money. Uh, She was not married, although I suspect she probably was. But anyway, she took him in her car, which, by the way, guys and and gals don't ever get in the car of a stranger. But she takes him out of town, about 30 minutes away, and she says that she owns two houses. And one of them is across the street from the other, and it's being worked on. So they're going to have to go to the one that's being constructed and isn't complete. But it does have a bed in it. Um, she stops in the driveway and says to him, is this for real? And he said that she got these big eyes. And at that moment, he was very turned off. But uh he said yeah 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 because what else are you going to do when you're in the car in the middle of nowhere with someone you don't know Um they go into the house he says yeah I th- I'm really tired you know I was up really late I'm drunk I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep and she um started um fellatiating him I'll say that he was not for that but uh, again what else could he do uh, he could have punched her in the face or p- pushed her off and ran through the woods naked or something but uh, he wasn't thinking rationally it was late at night um, and uh, he was telling her as she was getting on top of him I don't know that I want to do this, I think we should just go to sleep, and boom. So that was not a consensual interaction. And again, I say fuck Dak Shepard for saying it's impossible for women to sexually assault a man. Fuck you. Listen, this book is getting me too worked up, so we're going to read one more passage and I'm fucking over it. If you have an interest in this book, after everything that I've said about it, go read it. Absolutely. I never care to read it ever again. Later at dinner, we begin once again to argue about my father's need to control me. We fight over independence, over any independence I exhibit, whether of body, of mood, of thought. We fight over the clothes I wear and whether they might show any other man a snatch of flesh. My father considers his own. We fight over whether Paradise Lost is the greatest work ever written and whether its completion was worth the enslavement of the blind poet's daughters. We fight about my unwillingness to fight, about whether my silences are a hostile strategy or simply bewildered exhaustion. My father leans across the table. His face is the same shape, but much larger than mine, seemingly larger than other men's. At close range it seems planetary. You, he says too loudly for a restaurant, are a slut, just like your mother. Everyone who hears turns to see who's the big man, who the big man is talking to with such righteous conviction. My father has a knife in his hand. He lays it down on the table. I feel my face burn with shame and consider for a moment running outside, but the gesture would be just that. A gesture. I have no money with me. My father would chase me over the bridge or down to the lake's stagnant green banks. He'd cry, of course, and so would I. These scenes of recrimination and apology, they cost so much energy, and nothing is accomplished by them. I condemn this relationship as non-consensual. She was coerced into this. It's disgusting. I have nothing more to say about it. I believe that you as the audience are intelligent enough to get what's coming out of that passage. The power play, the manipulation, the fact that he wanted her to be his to the point where she couldn't wear what she wanted to. Yeah. It's... Disgusting, okay? Alright. So, critics of this novel came after her because she wrote a novel about her father, a novel, a memoir about her father, while he was still alive. Uh, Who the fuck cares? He raped her. Uh, why, Why are people feeling sympathy for a rapist? Why? Because she physically let it happen? Do you think that she deserves this? No. Ugh. People are disgusting, and I hate them. And I hate this book. I hate this episode. I'd never want to do this again! God damn it! Holy fuck, I hate this. Anyway, you've heard enough about me and my hatred for the kiss and everything that I've talked about in this episode. Um, People are creeps. Be careful who you surround yourself with. Uh, Don't be too trusting, uh, because uh, your mom might decide to stab you in the back one day. Okay? Okay. So, this has been Patrick Attaway With demise of the podcast. Happy weekend, happy writing, fuck off.